Well, good morning, Vintage. It's Gare here. It's great to be with you. And we're going to look at Matthew's Gospel again this morning. We're continuing in our series on a call to deeper discipleship, how, the, how Matthew's Gospel calls us into discipleship of Jesus. So far in the Gospel, if you've tracked with us, we've seen that Matthew shows us that Jesus is the King that has come to renew the world, to fix it, to heal it, to put it back together again, to get rid of all the brokenness to get rid of all the pain, all the trauma. And last week we saw that Jesus invites us into that story to participate with him, to see this world put back together again. And of course, we see Jesus in action, the King in action in our own church, seeing this healing, seeing this renewing, seeing this unfolding of his renewal project uh, we see it all the time in Alpha, in the marriage course, in our kids and youth, in our prayer ministry. Jesus is the King and he's come to bring his healing. But have you ever asked the question, why is it taking so long? Have you ever asked the question, why is there still so much pain in the world? Have you ever been frustrated with the speed at which Jesus is renewing and healing the world around us? You know, we're all caught up, aren't we, in the pain and the tragedies of life. We see on full display in this season, deadly pandemics. We see on display divisions in our nation. We see hurt and wounds within the church. Christians sometimes being really ugly towards each other. And it's so easy, isn't it, to get frustrated and disillusioned. And to ask the question, Jesus, aren't you supposed to be the king? Aren't you supposed to be bringing your kingdom? What is happening in the world around us? What is happening in my life? Maybe you're going through financial difficulties or relational trauma or maybe sickness. And we ask the question, Jesus, if you are king, if you are bringing your kingdom, it doesn't feel like it. I expected a lot more. And this is the question that we face in our reading today in Matthew's Gospel. In fact, just three chapters, Matthew 11 to 13, that deal with this specific frustration. And this frustration is loud and clear because it's the frustration of John the Baptist. You remember who John the Baptist is? He's the cousin of Jesus and he's uh, the, old, uh, the last old great prophet of the Old Testament. And he announces Jesus is on the scene after much uh, expectation and anticipation that the king is going to come. John the Baptist points at Jesus and say he's here. And there's great excitement that the king has come. The divine king has come back to fix the world. But John is frustrated. And John is confused because having announced that Jesus is the king to come and bring healing and drive out Ill, uh, evil in the world, John finds himself in chapter 11, in prison. John finds that he's on death row, that he might lose his life to the evil of the Roman Empire, oppressing John simply for telling others about Jesus and simply for standing up to unrighteousness and evil in society. John finds himself in prison and thinking, hang on a minute, where's Jesus? And so he sends he sends his disciples, his friends, his followers to Jesus to go, hang on a minute. And he asks the question that we all ask at times is, Jesus, are you really the king? Are you really the one? In verse two, it says this, when John, who was in prison, heard about what Jesus was doing, 
But looking at his own circumstances, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Are you really who you say you are? Because my experiences, my circumstances, don't tell me that you are. I don't feel it. Are you really the king that is renewing all things? I don't know about you, but I've asked that question too. And maybe you're asking that question now. Maybe you follow Jesus, but you're in a season, you're in an experience and a circumstance where you think, hang on a minute, Jesus, what are you doing? Why aren't you intervening? Why aren't you stopping this? And you're questioning. Well, we see that Jesus has three things to help John and to help us with this question. I'm going to look at these three things together. They are firstly, Jesus's evidence, Jesus's experience and Jesus's explanation. He gives us some evidence to believe in. He gives us some experience to comfort us. And he then explains what is going on in our confusion. So the first thing is Jesus' evidence. That Jesus listens to John and gives him evidence, even in the confusion, to trust him. That even in the disappointments, Jesus gives John evidence to hold on, to hang in there. It says this in verse 4, Jesus replied to John, go back, or to his disciples, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus wants John to know that yes, he is the king. And he does that by quoting some of the prophecies from the Old Testament. He says, look, what was prophesied in Isaiah and elsewhere, this is happening. I am the king that has been anticipated. I am the king who has come and come to renew all the world that you find all around us, the brokenness. He's come to fix it. And he gives examples of what's happening. But interestingly, he says, though I am the king, I know that your experience isn't the fullness of what you hope for. Because actually, there's one piece of the Old Testament that Jesus misses out. He says, look, the blind are receiving sight. He says those who have leprosy are being cleansed. The, you know, the good news is being proclaimed. But there's one bit of the Old Testament prophecy that Jesus intentionally misses out. And that's the piece that John is desperate for. Because in the Old Testament, the Messiah was also going to drive out all evil and free those who were wrongly imprisoned. Which is what John was. But Jesus intentionally misses that bit out. He says to John, look... Yes, I am the king. Yes, I am doing the things that the king is, to be, is promised to do. The world is being put back to right. But not fully in your circumstances. In other words, Jesus is saying, John, there's enough to trust me, even though there's some bits that are still confusing. You expected that when I came, all evil will be eradicated straight away. And it's not. You know that. You're in prison. But there's enough that is going on 
to confirm. There's enough evidence to say that I am the king and I'm inviting you to trust me. This is actually the story of the Christian life. That we don't get all of our, answer, our questions answered. We don't get all of our confusions sorted out. We often say, why? And we don't get the full answer. But there is enough that Jesus does tell us to trust him. There's enough to know that actually Jesus is the king that we're waiting for. I think it's quite understandable, isn't it? That sometimes, you know, with parents, with the children, the children are going, but why, Dad? Why, why, why? And I look at my kids and go, it's just too much for me to explain or it's too difficult. I try sometimes, but I say, look, at the end of the day, you're just going to have to trust me. And so it is with our relationship with our Heavenly Father. That sometimes our questions aren't answered. Sometimes our frustrations are met with simply, you've got to trust me. This happened with the disciples many times. I remember uh, in John chapter 6, Jesus is giving this teaching and lots of people don't like it. It's just too hard for them. And many leave Jesus. And Jesus turns to his disciples and particularly to Peter and say, are you going to leave me too? And what's interesting about this situation is Peter doesn't say, no, I get your teaching. I love it. It's fantastic. He doesn't say that. In fact, he's finding it difficult too. But he just looks at Jesus and says, you know what? I don't get what you're talking about, but where else am I going to go? Because I know enough by now that you have the words of eternal life. You are the king. You are my God. And I found myself many times looking at my circumstances, looking at maybe some unanswered prayer, looking at some disappointments in my life, and thinking, Jesus, I'm not too sure. Have I got it right in following you? Are you the one? And then I sit back and look at the evidence and go, you know what? I've got questions. But I know enough to know that he is the king. He is the one that the world is waiting for. It's so important, isn't it, to remind ourselves of all that Jesus has done in our lives. To remind ourselves of all that he has answered prayer. All that he has broken through. So that we, in the confusing moments, don't actually let those confusions overwhelm the evidence. It's why I say to my children, I say to everyone who asks, I say, it's why the evidence for the resurrection is so important. Because there's been times in my life when the circumstances actually are so confusing and frustrating of why God isn't breaking in in this way. And I don't know, and yet I go back sometimes to the fundamental truths of actually Jesus rose from the dead. He proved who he said he was. And because he rose from the dead... That changes everything. I remember Bishop N.T. Wright gave this little story that he went into a taxi one day in London and the taxi driver was asking him all about the Church of England and the church and all that mess it was in. And, and, you know, and the taxi driver said, look, I don't know what to believe about all this stuff. But he says this, he said, the way I look at it, he said, is this. If God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, all the rest is simply rock and roll. And what he was saying is, look, at times we have to actually just look at the facts and the evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. He did come to die on the death for you and for me. Therefore, it's unequivocal he loves us. 
and he rose from the dead with so much evidence to say that's true and therefore he is who he says he is and so in the confusions in the frustrations Jesus invites us to say look I I can't answer everything but do you trust me The second thing that Jesus does is he doesn't just give us evidence. He actually says, I'm sharing in your experience of frustration. He's sharing in our experience of frustration. Chapter 11 opens with Jesus giving evidence that he is the king, even despite not everything lining up in our experience sometimes with that. But then for the rest of chapters 11 and 12, Jesus gives full clarity that he too encounters the pain and the brokenness and the tragedy of this world. He's sharing in our frustrations and in our sufferings. So up until now in Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus healing and doing great miracles with great applause and fanfare. But now the tables are turned and we see time and time again in these chapters of people rejecting Jesus, accusing him of being a drunkard, of being a glutton. They even try, the church at the time tries to plot to kill Jesus for doing a miracle. Jesus casts out a demon and then people accuse him of being a demon. Even his own family start to get angry with him. And time and time again, Jesus is showing us that he too is frustrated. He too is grieving the pain and the brokenness in this world. And that he is experiencing what we experience is actually his kingdom is often rejected, is often opposed. I love that Jesus, I often think of Jesus in some kind of um, non-human kind of way. In the sense that he was divine, but I forget that he's human and shares our grief. And even shares our holy anger at times. And I think, gosh, when Jesus was rejected, was he just kind of stoic about it and just goes, well, all things work out in the end, whatever it is. No, like you and me, he weeps and he grieves over the pain in this world. This is Jesus the King and they reject him as they reject you and me sometimes. And in this chapter, we see that Jesus actually is so grieved that he, that he actually... It says he denounces some whole cities. He isn't rejecting them, but he's declaring his grief that they've rejected him. That he's done miracles in these cities. But he says, what sorrow await you, Bethesda and Chorazin? For if the miracles I did in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented long ago. And he's crying over these towns going, why have you rejected me? I think this is in this gospel because it encourages us to know that Jesus too shares the experience of the grief of a world rejecting his kingdom, of people turning away from him, of people misunderstanding his motives, of Christians even attacking him. He knows what we go through. It's a great comfort to know that in this season where we can be frustrated and disillusioned with church sometimes and with the behavior of Christians, so is Jesus. And if he faced it, then so will we. Jesus knows what you're going through and he's able to empathize with us and be there for us. But thirdly and importantly, 
Jesus doesn't just empathize with us. He just doesn't give us evidence to trust him in the frustrations. He also explains why we are experiencing the delay in his kingdom. He explains it. I, as a kid, would often have one word that was my most popular word and it used to frustrate everyone. It was like, it was this word, why? Why, Dad? Why is that happening? Why? And that is a great question that sometimes we don't have the answers from God and we have to trust him. But Jesus actually does want to give us answers where he can and where we'll understand. And in Matthew chapter 13, he actually teaches eight parables it's called one of the great discourses in Matthew's Gospel of Jesus' teaching, eight parables that explain to us how his kingdom is coming. We've seen that the king is here and he's bringing his kingdom, but he explains how it's coming and it's different to what John expected. It's different to what we sometimes want it to be. But Jesus recalibrates our expectations and explains to us Look, this is the normative way my kingdom is coming. And in these eight parables, we see Jesus explaining to us, look, this is how it comes. Now, I don't have time to go through the eight parables. Uh, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, please do go and read them. They're amazing parables and really help us. Oh, okay, maybe my expectations were wrong. And it helps us live into what Jesus is doing. But I'm gonna summarize just three quick truths that Jesus does want us to get out of these eight parables that help us with the question, why aren't you just stopping all of this? Why is it so slow? And the first thing is this, Jesus teaches that his kingdom comes in stages. His kingdom comes in stages. See, John the Baptist thought it was one stage and one stage only. The king would come and fix everything overnight. That he would come and defeat sin and death and drive out evil from the world, and straight away everything would be on, on earth as it was in heaven. But Jesus in these parables teaches us that it comes in two stages. He actually recalibrates the expectations of how his kingdom come. It, his kingdom has come in Jesus, in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, that he has defeated in the cross and resurrection, the root of sin and evil in the world. All the problems in this world he's dealt with on the cross and he rose victorious, stage one. But stage two is yet to come. Stage two is when Jesus returns and puts everything fully back in order. That the victory of stage one isn't outworked fully until stage two. And there is great expectation, particularly in the book of Revelation, that one day Jesus will come back and there'll be a new heaven and new earth. The old is gone, the new has come. There'll be no more pain, no more death, no more tears. That's stage two. But Jesus wants us to know that we then live between the stages. Stage one, the cross and the resurrection where victory was won, and stage two, when that victory will be fully realized. We are living between these stages. And Jesus says, this is a messy stage where he talks about the parable of the wheats and, the, and uh, the weeds, where the wheat of the kingdom of God is growing amongst the weeds of the world, where darkness and light are living side by side, where victory is now being tasted by the people of God, demonstrating it to those around us, but it's not gonna be fully realized until the end. It's why we experience, don't we, great intimacy with Jesus and then sometimes we feel just far away. It's, it's why sometimes we pray for people and they're healed and sometimes we don't. 
It's why sometimes we tell people about Jesus and they respond and sometimes they don't. We're living in the in-between stage where the kingdom is coming but it's not fully realised. Where the wheat and the weeds live together. Where we are bumping shoulders with the darkness as the people of the light. And we'll see that in the church, we'll see that in society. Jesus is honest and says, look, we are sharing in the sufferings. We are actually sharing in the pain of this world until he comes again. And the question I have is like, why? Why delay it? Why have this stage too? And there really is one answer to that. And it's one word. And it's love. It's love. Jesus delays getting rid of all evil in the world so that many might come and be invited into his kingdom. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus defeats sin and Satan but says, look, I'm going to give time, I'm going to give opportunity to invite people into receiving this free gift of life. We are products today of this delay. Because God delayed, I'm alive and I'm alive in him. And this delay is for us to see as our responsibility to go out and share the great invitation of Jesus to come into his victory, to come into his salvation. N.T. Wright puts it this way, he says, This way remains God's way of working, and there's good reason for it. If God was simply to declare on a particular day or over a space of a few weeks that his justice would now operate throughout the world, that stage two was here, he says, the whole human race would stand condemned. But again and again we find that the belief in the New Testament is that God must delay his final action in order to give people time to repent. Time to receive his invitation to find their way to Jesus. I was on Montana Avenue this last week and uh, in Creation Cafe, outdoors, having a coffee. And I could see all the stores being boarded up before the election. I saw a few SWAT vehicles go back and forth. And I just, I actually was overwhelmed with all the brokenness, all the hatred, all the division, all the greed in society. I was overwhelmed by it. And I actually just fed up of it. And I just went, Lord, will you just call it? Will you just come now and deal with it? And then I remembered that I'm a product of his delay. And I don't know when he's come back again, but I felt his love say, impressing on me again, say, Gare, it's because of this brokenness, it's because of this darkness that I am delaying. Because I want everyone to be saved. I want everyone to come in. For this season, we are rubbing shoulders with the darkness, not because Jesus just is blind to the pain, but because he wants to get rid of the pain without getting rid of people. (laughs) He wants us to accept him, to come in. The second thing he teaches us in these parables is that his kingdom is not by coercion. His kingdom is not by coercion. There wasn't an expectation by John the Baptist and others that actually Jesus would be like a military ruler and he would just sweep in with his kingdom and push everyone aside, no matter what they thought, no matter what they felt, no matter what they agreed with or not. But God is love. 
and therefore his kingdom is of love and love can never be coerced onto others. Free will is the great gift to humanity in creation. And so God advances his kingdom through influence, not control, through loving invitation, not power. Jesus' kingdom advances through wooing people, drawing people in through love. And that obviously sets up the possibility which we see that many people will reject Jesus through their own free will. This is what the parable of the sower is all about. If you know the parable of the sower, Jesus says, look, the kingdom of God advances in this stage of salvation history like a farmer throwing seed out onto the field. And you hope that every seed germinates and bears fruit. But he says, actually, what we find is because of free will, because there is an enemy still, because of people's sinful hearts, because of their desires for all sorts of stuff and greed and lust or whatever, that sometimes they reject the seed. And in fact, when you read this parable, it seems like most of the seed is, is rejected. But he says, but the seed that falls on good soil represents those who truly hear and receives God's word. And they produce a harvest of 30, 60 or even 100 times as much uh, that has been planted. It means when we are living in this stage, we're going to have great excitement when the kingdom advances, when people are healed, when people come to know Jesus, when there's great breakthroughs in marriages being restored. It's like the seed falling on rich soil, it bears much fruit, but there's also going to be times of great sadness. When we see the seed that's been sown and people reject Jesus, marriages break down, sickness persists, greed and envy invade the church. A great example of this tragedy, even Jesus experiences at the end of this chapter, because he goes to his hometown to say hello to his homies. He goes preach in the local church. And guess what? They reject him. They reject Jesus. And they says, it says they even scoff at him. And it says because of that, he actually couldn't even do many miracles in his hometown because they were rejecting his kingdom. This is why we live in the great triumphs and celebrations of God doing great things and then also the great sadness of where people reject him. That's why on Alpha, I love Alpha, it's our kind of evening dinner parties where people can come and explore Jesus without judgment, without preaching, without any kind of coercion, just loving invitation to have a great conversation. And Nicky Gumbel, who's the author of the Alpha course in London, uh, I remember when I saw him once, he said, look, yeah, never forget, Alpha is the most exciting, but also the most disappointing of all ministries. Because when you're talking to people about Jesus, there'll be some who will, their eyes will open wide and they'll discover there's a God who loves them by grace and they can't wait to get to know him but there'll be some who reject and you don't see them the next week and you wonder what happened and you're grieved but this is the nature of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is never by force it's by loving invitation and then finally, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, look, I know you want it overnight. I know you want it straight away. I know you want it to be done in kind of some microwave fashion. But Jesus says, look, my kingdom is going to grow, but it's going to look small. 
It's also going to look like it's going slowly, but I can reassure you it's unstoppable. That the victory he has won will be outworked. He gives these two parables that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that when it's planted will eventually grow huge and significant and massive and large. And he said the kingdom of heaven is like yeast. That these tiny little grains of yeast look insignificant and tiny, but when you put them in a dough and you let it do its work, then it will expand and fill the whole, the whole dough and make this beautiful, rich, beautiful loaf of bread. I know loaf of bread isn't very exciting because it's full of carbohydrates nowadays, but this is the power of the kingdom, but it's going to come slowly and it's going to come through small, seemingly insignificant acts of the kingdom of God. I know that we want great revival all the time. I pray for that and there are great moments of revival. But Jesus says, look, those revivals are wonderful. They refresh the church, but often they're not the permanent state of the church where it's just thousands and thousands and thousands of people every day coming to know Jesus. I love those moments. But he said also there's times where it's like yeast, where it's every day your faithfulness going to your workplace and scattering just the yeast into your environment, loving people, serving them, encouraging them, inviting them to Alpha, inviting them to church, offering to pray for them. Small, seemingly insignificant acts, but he says when you are faithful in being yeast in your environment, when you are being faithful in being yeast in your family, when you plant the little seed of a mustard seed in your children's life of the gospel, he said when you pray over it, though it may not seem to be taking root, may, may it, say it's, it seems not to be doing anything, he says, believe me, the power of the seed is unstoppable. The power of the yeast is unstoppable. You are called to faithfulness, to sow the seed, to scatter the yeast, and to keep doing that. Because Jesus says, in his hands, these seeds and this yeast will grow and grow. It takes patience, takes, takes us being faithful, takes endurance, but his kingdom is unstoppable. We see this with his family at the end of this chapter. His family looked like they're rejecting him. His hometown looked like they're persecuting him. But I think there's a sign here, isn't there, that after, after the resurrection, we see the early church being um, extended and the gospel being preached by who? His family and key members of his hometown. I think Jesus wants us to see that it could look bleak. At times it looks confusing, but Jesus has won the victory. His kingdom is coming. And as we faithfully scatter the seed, as we faithfully just patiently sow the seeds of the mustard seed, as we faithfully just put the yeast into the dough of our families, in our environments, in our workplaces, in our communities, his kingdom is unstoppable. We have to reframe our expectations that it's overnight. But as we are faithful, we can be full of hope that even in the darkness, even of this season, his kingdom is coming. His kingdom is unstoppable. Jesus is the king. Let's pray together. So Jesus, we thank you that you are the king. And even now when we think, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you stopping this? We thank you that you are the king. 
You know what this is like. And actually, your kingdom is coming in ways that sometimes we think, oh, we wish it was faster, but you're delaying because of love. And you invite us into this great kingdom of sowing the seeds wherever we are, patiently, with faith and hope, that your seeds will grow. So Lord, comfort us wherever we are, challenge us to keep on sowing, and give us great hope as we look forward to that day when you return, and all things will be made new. In Jesus' name, amen.